Hammer Japan, I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Mr. Johnny Hughes will join us to discuss on the origin of teepees. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Evolution is a powerful force in biology, leading to the emergence of the complex forms that encompass the biosphere. But does a similar force work in the construction of human cultures and civilizations? And what would such a force act on? Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Mr. Johnny Hughes. Mr. Hughes is the noted journalist who has appeared in numerous newspapers and magazines, as well as on television in the BBC, Discovery, and National Geographic Channel. His new work, On the Origin of Teepees, the Evolution of Ideas and Ourselves, explores this topic for a general audience. And uh, Mr. Hughes, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Well, thank you very much for having me. Uh, well, it's certainly our pleasure, and this is really a fascinating book you've written uh, on the origin of teepees, certainly a play on the uh, famous title by uh, Darwin, On the Origin of Species. I'm curious, how did you come up with the idea of yourself of writing this book? Well, I first came across um, this theory, this theory of ideas behaving a little bit like um, living things and um, bowing to Darwinian rules. Um, it's been around for a while, and I first came across it when I was studying um, biological sciences at universities, that was back in the end of the 80s. So it was discussed about that all the way since then. Um, but I followed it um, as sort of as an interested party as it's developed over the years, and there's more and more people starting to consider this as a serious approach to cultural science. But it struck me that it's never really gone into the popular realm, and it ought to because there's lots of interesting ideas in it. It gives us a new way of looking at the human species that we all belong to, but also the world that we've created as well. answers a lot of questions that we can't answer with other approaches. What is essentially the gist of the idea? Is that ideas in the same way as genes you can think of are selected for? Yeah, I mean, what's happened in the last hundred years, biological science has matured a great deal. Uh, At the start of the 20th century, we had very little idea about what constructed the incredible diverse world out there. Now, at the end of the 20th century, we've got an incredibly detailed and persuasive account of how diversity came about, how speciation occurs, how and why creatures have had to adapt to their environments. Um, We've even got a a real good knowledge of our own genome, of course, because we've coded it. So a lot of the questions have been cracked in biology. Um, And people started to think towards the end of last century, well, we now get biological evolution. And biological evolution comes down to, at the end of the day, uh, competition between selfish little entities that we've called genes. So these things battle to be passed on to the next generation. That's the way evolution in a Darwinian sense works. So people have been looking at another type of evolution, cultural evolution, which of course has an enormous impact on our lives and that we're heavily engaged in. And that's the same question, is there a selfish little unit? 
at the core of cultural evolution, of the evolution, the adaptation, the change, the sort of surviving and the reproducing of ideas. And if, if there is such a thing, then that might explain the sorts of patterns that we've seen in our own evolution over the past three to four million years. So there is an, another name, a more technical name for this um, approach, which is mean theory, because ever smart coining a phrase, these scientists have come up with a word that sounds a bit like gene, mean, to describe this selfish little unit. And a lot of the, what I um, talk about in the book comprises this mean theory and kind of uh, expands on it and really uh, fleshes it out. How is it that we're actually supposed to conceive of this meme as how exactly can we think of a meme in, in the same way that we think of genes? Uh, well, that's a great question because, uh, and in fact, it's a question that has been used as a criticism of meme theory because, you know, one of the first things you could say to someone proposing this theory is, well, show me a meme then. If, if, if culture is made of memes, what do they look like? Show me one. We can't yet. We don't know what a meme looks like. It's a theoretical unit at the moment. It's a unit that has a sort of philosophical power in that it helps us to explain certain patterns we see. So what does it comprise of? Well, I do have a stab in my book at answering that from very recent research into mirror neurons, which a lot of psychologists are heavily involved in and quite excited about right now. Um, but my overall answer to that is, um, well, we don't know yet. I'm sure we're going to find out. And we've got to remember that the gene, this theoretical unit as it was at one stage, was posited a good hundred years before we ever saw a gene, if you like it, before Watson and Crick decoded DNA and saw what, what must be a gene on the molecule of DNA. So I think, you know, we've got, we, if you like, we've got another 75 years ahead of us where we would still be beating the race if we managed to uh, actually discover and have a look at what a meme looks like. Your own sort of uh, investigations in the book um, takes you on to look at various teepees that you found and how that might actually be indicative of uh, memes moving. Yeah, well, I wanted, I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a journalist and a, and a documentary maker. I'm not an academic. So it's not, these are not my ideas, my theories. I wanted to try them out, really take them for a road test. So in order to do that, because there's parallels, if you like, Charles Darwin's Galapagos trip and his discovery of patterns that suggested to him that natural selection is working in biological evolution. Um, I wanted to do something analogous to that. So I wanted to go on a sort of cultural Darwinian trip and come up with a cultural Galapagos um, and look for, if you like, a cultural equivalent to his finches. And so in a cultural sense, an island, because that's what the Galapagos is made up of, um, an island would be a somewhat isolated bunch of human minds because it's the human minds that contain all ideas. And if it's isolated, then it's effectively a sort of island within cultural space, if you like. And very few of those left. I mean, the world is massively connected, interconnected, and we all have access to uh, all sorts of information. But not long ago, there were islands like that, and we called them tribes. Um, and, of course, the Wild West was full of them until fairly recently, and they're very well documented. So um, I, I'm, I'm not an American, as you probably guessed, so um, my trip through America was going to be a, a sort of cultural experience anyway. But I pushed on into the Great Plains in order to find the original hunting grounds of a variety of different Plains Indian tribes. And when you go into those areas, effectively you are kind of landing upon 
cultural islands. And I was looking for what in biology we call a radiation, which is a, a scattering of very closely related species that you can imagine come from an original single species. Um, and I was looking for, in this case, my species were teepees. So what I wanted to have a look at, really, and I didn't know anything about teepees before I went on the trip. Um, I just knew they were fascinating things. But I, I, I would have expected, if there was a natural selection working in our cultural, I would have expected that each of these tribes had their own particular teepee and that each teepee was slightly different from the neighboring tribe's teepee, just as a Galapagos finch on one island is slightly different from a Galapagos finch on another island. Um, and actually, to cut to the chase, that's what I found. Um, every tribe on the plains had slightly different teepees, and the closer they were related in all sorts of senses, language groups, or just pure geography, um, trading uh, routes, the closer their teepees uh, matched as well. So there was a nice pattern that I, I came across there. Did it match in sort of the similar way as with biology where uh, all of a sudden you would see a transition to something that almost was completely different than a teepee? Almost you would think of a different species of teepee. Well, yes. I mean, it, obviously we can use the term sort of at our own convenience, and, and we do in biology all the time. People forget that the word species is a very clumsy term for a lot of life. It's fine for zoo animals, but when you get to plants and uh, insects and bacteria, the word species is, is a pretty rough term. Um, but, yeah, it was definitely the case that when you went from one tribe to another, you were basically seeing a different species of teepee that was surviving um, in that little cluster of um, mines, that little island in cultural space. And there was a, to my delight, as I say, because I wasn't expect, I didn't know what to expect really, but there was a, a very Darwinian break at several points. So what I found was that there are two essentially two types of teepee out there. Um, there's the three-pole teepee where you set a little tripod up and then you stack um, other poles on it and then put your canvas over the top. Um, or there's the uh, four-pole teepee where you have a sort of quadrangular pyramid shape and then you stack those up. That's a, a big split. Um, and that, was, that must have happened quite a long time ago because there's quite a few representatives of both groups. And so with, with uh, looking at differences and similarities like that, you can kind of create a little taxonomy of teepees, um, and that's what I tried to do. Did anything strike you then as to why certain teepee designs or shapes or the idea of certain teepees will, will actually won out over other ideas? Um, it's a good question. Actually, I mean, I'm, I had uh, really just the evidence I was gathering, and I talked to a few Plains Indian archaeologists as well, uh, and of course tribal members. Um, but it's you know, it's difficult to gather enough evidence, so there's a lot of guesswork here. But um, you talk to anyone out there, um, and they, well, for starters, each tribal uh, group will prefer its own teepee, that's for sure. Um, but the other thing is that those that have the three-pole teepee, the tripod, um, they go on about, they boast about how easy it is to erect, how it just takes one person to put up, and then once it's up, um, it's it won't come down again. It's really resistant to the very strong winds that you have from the west over there. The four-pole TP people, they'll admit that it actually takes a couple of guys, uh, usually, actually used to be traditionally women, that would put up the TPs. Um, so in a way, you 
might like to think, and I don't suggest it really on air, but he might like to think that the three-pole TP uh, is a step on from the four-pole TP. And uh, I make a case for, you can imagine evolution going one way, but not necessarily the other way. And in fact, when you look at where the TPs are distributed, you find that the three-pole TPs, they exist on, um, in the tribes that were traditionally on the eastern side of the Great Plains, where the winds were much stronger. Um, in other words, they were much more exposed. And you can imagine that environment would breed a three-pole teepee, a teepee that um, had a better chance of surviving the winter. Why do you think it is then that there are certain ideas, memes, that are not necessarily beneficial for our survival that actually take root and held in, in societies? I mean, excellent. This is, this is exactly the sort of question that people get into. If we can uh, entertain at least the idea that this may be happening, that there may be some sort of Darwinian process going on, then it does make you change your perspective a little bit on our engagement with our own culture. Because in actual fact, just as we're really not in charge of our biological evolution, because our genes have been and are still, and we are, you know, we've got to admit, we're suckers for our genes. We're also not really in charge of cultural evolution if it has the same mechanism behind it, which means that the memes are in charge. So I talk about, you know, let's ask this question, do, do we have ideas or do ideas have us? Because effectively, if you're going to be extreme about it, you could say that we are hosts to these ideas that are surviving, that are reproducing, which means being passed from one person to another and, um, and adapting, of course, having a whale of a time in our collective minds. When you look at humanity like that, you start to realize that in a way we are, as we really struggle against it, we are prone to hosting loads of ideas that are not necessarily that beneficial to us. Um, they're just finding a, a niche um, in the way, in, a, in our minds, in our collective memories, and exploiting it, just like any organism would do. So you're right. I mean, maybe if we adopt this kind of view and we're quite serious about it, maybe we should look to a future where we kind of indulge in active mimetic modification, that where we actually make a real point of choosing which ideas we allow to thrive and then casting away others that we think long-term are going to be no good to us. Um, there are potentially malignant ideas out there. Of course, we've seen it in history plenty of times. And You know, you ask yourselves maybe... I. I work with a German girl at work right now. She's lovely. Now, back in the 1930s, her folk uh, were prone to all sorts of, we would call them now malignant ideas. Um, they were housing, hosting, um, all sorts of ideas that led to bad things, stuff that we wouldn't be proud of, stuff that Germany isn't proud of today. And yet it's the same people who are around today with a whole host of other ideas. We're all vulnerable um, to these sorts of um, malignant forces and uh, we ought to be aware of it and the more we're aware of it the more we can protect ourselves against it those sorts of ideas though they they do encounter resistance in, in cultures and in a way get somewhat pushed back by other ideas so that there is again this interplay this competition for for the ideas that went out in the overall world cultural space if you will yeah there's i mean at the moment with our world as it is and our western civilization we're all connected and you can phone me every evening and I can Skype everyone and we can tweet things. I mean, there, are, there, is very little, there are very little barriers to any kind of meme idea spreading. And sure enough, they are. I mean, I guess we ought to celebrate the fact that we're living in this age, and it'll increase, I'm sure, of an amazing kind of idea diversity. 
Um, we always think biodiversity is a good thing, and the more diverse the biosphere, the better. Maybe we could say, well, the more diverse the idea sphere, the better. But I don't know. I think we should be a little bit more aware that we accept ideas and we take them on、um, a little bit too easily sometimes, and you know, really have once we are self-aware,、uh, be quite cautious about which ideas we let in and which ideas we promote. Do you have、uh, sort of a, an idea of where、uh, the idea of memes is heading in terms of how we、uh, sort of organize our societies and our cultures? As I said, we've had a century of biological discovery, and we really have a good sense now of, of, of the biosphere and how it operates and our place in it. I think what we're going to have in the next hundred years, especially with the development of new tools like functional MRIs and EEGs and These sorts of things. I think we're going to. In fact, a lot of really amazing stuff is being done in Chicago, as you probably know.、Uh, I think we're going to have a hundred years of、um, psychological discovery, which actually means self-discovery. I think we're going to find out a lot about our own species, our fallibilities, our weaknesses, and well, that's going to be quite tough to bear at some some points. This extra self-perception, but in the same, if we get through it, I think at the same the same way. We're going to be a lot more able, really, to plot our own destiny because we'll know what sort of creature we are. And at the moment, we're still pretty vague about that. Speculative question: There is the philosopher Ray Kurzweil who supposes that in thirty or forty years or so, we'll be able to essentially just be ideas ourselves. That、uh, our consciousnesses will be just part of a large computer program. In that sense, do you think that it would sort of be the fulfillment of ideas taking over and being driver of all of the subsequent evolution of human culture? Blimey! <laughs> <laughs> I, well, that's fascinating. I, I think obviously there's. In popular culture, there's a lot of reference to、um, the Matrix and disappearing off into the web, and spending more time in the infosphere, as, as people call it. And certainly, ideas, there are bots out there, there are tweeting bots. There, are, there's, there's ways in which ideas can replicate, you know, even without our assistance. And I suppose in this model of the world, <clears throat> of the human world, I think we would see ourselves, our brains, as if you like. Idea processing machines, so we can store them, we can pass them on.、Um, there are all sorts of things at play as to why we would want to pass on some and, and not pass on others.、Um, but is there a scenario where we don't even need biological brains anymore? These machines, these idea machines. Is there a scenario where artificial intelligence could be developed, where they're just as good as we are at learning stuff? And, Retaining stuff and passing it on to others, well, it's possible, I'm sure.、Um, I think at the moment, I think it's very complicated. I think artificial intelligence experts are discovering that the human brain and the way that it operates is、um, spectacularly more complicated than they had even imagined before. And there are interesting little discoveries, such as、uh, our brains don't seem to be able to function without what they're calling a narrative technology, a、uh, kind of、uh, appreciation of stories and understanding of. Uh, what a story is, and, and basically, a story is a way of picking out meaningful information from a whole load of information.、Um, we're extremely good at that. We're, we're story-based creatures, and it's going to take AI in all,、uh, to develop some sort of artificial storytelling machine in order, I think, to propagate memes on their own. I think something like that is going to be essential, and we're probably a long way from that. But maybe Ray's right. Right. I mean, 
uh, it's ahead, I'm sure, it's at some point in our future, and it's going to be yet another ethical debate for scientists to take on. All right, well, the new book is called On the Origin of Teepees, The Evolution of Ideas and Ourselves. And uh, Mr. Hughes, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. No problem. Thank you very much. And you were just listening to Mr. Johnny Hughes discussing the On the Origin of Teepees. This is the Grok's Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes is the Grokatron 5000, so stay tuned. It's time to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. And today the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, Powerful Meme. So for the following five individuals, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you think they are a carrier of a powerful meme or not. Uh, Mr. Hughes, ready to play the game? Absolutely. Okay, here we go. Person number one, uh, does he carry a powerful meme? The host, Simon Cowell. Well, yes, he does, because Simon Cowell has cracked the magic formula of uh, bringing what is essentially just a kind of entertainment show into the stratosphere. So he's done it over in the UK, and he's doing it over the States, and he's doing it in Australia. So, yeah, he's got a powerful idea in his head. Um, it's obviously doing extremely well for him, and um, I kind of wish I had it before him. <laughs> All right, number two, it's the uh, soccer great David Beckham. That's an interesting one because, um, yeah, memes, I think, um, can be split up into a variety of different subtypes. And um, there's probably tons, but I, I think of three. And they're based on, because I used to be in education, I used to teach people, and there are three types of education. So it kind of fits. The first one is psychomotor uh, memes. One of the, what they are are uh, manual skills, sort of dexterous skills, physical skills, um, tying up shoelace, uh, using a pair of scissors, riding a bike, that sort of stuff. And then there's cognitive, which is sort of fact-based, uh, where Quebec is and, um, you know, what the uh, currency of Thailand is, all that sort of stuff. And then there's uh, affective um, meme, which are your opinions, what sort of opinions you should have about things, what uh, sort of ethical, moral things. Um, what David, so Simon Cowell will have some sort of um, cognitive, incredibly sophisticated cognitive meme in his head. But David Beckham is all about psychomotor. He's been born 
um, with some incredible gift, and then the athlete will have these in abundance. So he's got some ability to move his body in such a way um, that he can, well, what Beckham does best of all is, uh, and he's still doing it, bless him, is he runs down the right-hand side, and from midfield he'll do a magnificent curving um, crossover, and anyone who gets on the end of that is going to score. So he's got some incredible balance-related kicking um, meme that he must have practiced ad nauseum, but he can do it. Um, all right, number three, Richard Dawkins. Oh, he's stuffed full of memes. <laughs> knows. Um, he's got all sorts of ideas, and, you know, some of them stick, and others we don't talk about anymore. But um, he certainly comes forward with enough, and uh, they're powerful. They are powerful. I mean, they are powerful ideas, and, I mean, he came up with the word meme in the first place, as you no doubt know. So, um He's he's good at it. He's good at um, coming up with ideas that will make an impression that will stick. And of course, he also likes, and let's admit it, he likes to be a bit provocative too. So he he cites and sort of sells and brands his ideas in such a way that um, yeah, they will kick up a bit of fuss. But that's part of his mission. So yeah, he's got powerful memes too. They all have these guys. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, number four then, uh, Sharon Osbourne. Okay, that's interesting. Because <laughs> I don't know that. Plus, I mean, Sharon's lovely and um, very entertaining, mainly because she's just nice and she's kind of, um, in a way, ordinary and everyday, despite her extraordinary um, lifestyle and um, background. But I think the contrast and the fact that she's ordinary and um, approachable and easily likable, I think, is her attraction. And that's kind of idea-free, if you like. And I, and I think there's, um, you know, it's important to realize that not everything we do is meme-related. Um, and there's you know, some really quite nice times in our lives where we can get rid of all our ideas in our head and we can, start, we can sort of lie back and relax. And I suppose meditation is part of this. I don't do much meditation myself, but um, this sort of idea of ridding yourselves of your thoughts is very relaxing. And I think there's a kind of natural charisma to people that's meme-free as well. Um, Sharon seems to have those. Whether it's a powerful idea, I don't know, maybe I'm not giving her enough credit, but I think her main um, victory is uh, just being you know, charismatic. Hmm. Well, she's that. Uh, number five, finally then, it's uh, the Prime Minister of the UK, David Cameron. Complex. <laughs> and he has to be charismatic, of course, otherwise he's not going to be Prime Minister. But that's tested on a daily basis. He's having real trouble at the moment. You probably heard about the riots in London, and he's having to try and contain them and persuade people. Um, that's what politicians are all about, persuasion. So he has to be incredibly good at delivering memes. But the interesting question about politicians, isn't it, is um, how many of those ideas are their own? Or maybe, or they're just conduits of ideas. Are they just people who are good at voicing ideas? Hmm. And we all have to make a little when we go to the voting booths, we all have to make a little decision about whether that person is a real idea generator, an ideas person, or whether they're just full of someone else's. All right. Well, Mr. Hughes, I want to thank you very much for um, sitting around playing the game and, again, talking about the book, which is uh, on the origin of teepees, the evolution of ideas and ourselves. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. 
And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.